Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 26. We've just finished getting, having Jesus pray to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples fell asleep three times. And now we're going to take up in this audio the arrest of Jesus, finishing up with that. The next audio will take up the trial of Jesus by the Jews before he's tried by the Romans. So we'll start here in verse 47 through 49. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, and what was Jesus speaking? He was saying, get up, get up, guys. The one who betrays me is here. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now let me say right here, it's a little bit ambiguous here whether the chief priests and elders sent people or whether they were actually chief priests and elders in the crowd. When we read the parallel passages, we'll see it's a little bit clearer that there were chief priests and elders in the the mob also. His betrayer had given them a sign. That's Judas had given the people and the chief priests and the elders a sign and and the temple police. He had given them a sign, the one I kiss. He's the one. Arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but how incongruous this is, how stupid it is. Why would a friend come up to you with a mob with sticks and swords brandishing over their heads, and they come up to you and say, Hi, buddy. Hi, hi, old friend. Let me kiss you. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. But that's what he did. Now, this mob consisted of chief priests, elders, Chief priests, of course, are the chief religious leaders. The elders are the chief political leaders of the, of the Sanhedrin. So the political and religious establishment was out to get him. Teachers of the law, that's the academic establishment. Mark 14:43 tells us this, the parallel passage. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Mark adds that detail. And John adds another detail. The temple police were also in the crowd. John 18:3. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priest, the temple police, of course, were people who were supposed to guard the temple. And then, of course, there were Roman soldiers there in John 18.3, so Judas took a company of soldiers, and that, that would be Roman soldiers. The NIV Study Bible says that the people who came in that mob also added some last-minute conscripts. I don't know who they were. And they were the ones carrying the clubs, some rowdies, some toughs, some hooligans. I don't know, but anyway, it was a it was a a large contingent of enemies, and the disciples were quite outnumbered. Now, notice that the disciples were sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane while Judas was working hard getting his betrayers up, all the people in this crowd, coming to get Jesus. So Jesus didn't even have the the good guys fighting for him, not even praying for him, while his enemies were ranged, ranged against him. Now, why were there so many people coming just to arrest one person and his 11 disciples? Well, John Gill says a lot might have come out of curiosity, but it also might have been a practical reason that they were afraid of the popular reaction. Remember, there's several times they thought about the religious leaders thought about arresting Jesus, but he slipped through their hands. They couldn't get him. Couldn't. Couldn't. They couldn't nail him. That was in the daytime, though. But here, I guess they figured it was at night. They got a big crowd. Now they're gonna get him because in the, at nighttime there's not gonna be so much of a popular reaction. Now all the authority figures in that mob gave the color of law to their lynching, and that's basically what it was: it was a lynch mob. Now, actually, the prearranged sign of the kiss was actually unnecessary. Jesus went ahead and identified himself in Luke 22, verse 47, which I won't read, but he, he basically says it's clear when you read that verse that Jesus just basically identified himself. Who are you seeking? This is me, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am he. So it wasn't necessary. 
But Judas carried out that plan against anyway, and as a result, we still have that phrase in our English language, are you going to betray me with a kiss? Now, why did Judas plan to use this for a sign? It was a usual greeting among the disciples to kiss each other, so to kiss kiss Jesus on the cheek would not put Jesus on his guard. Adam Clark said that Judas is coolly deliberate, he's deeply hypocritical, and diabolically malicious. And the Greek word, which is kataphilasan, means tenderly kissed him, is the proper meaning of Adam Clark. That's the way he translates that Greek word. Judas tenderly kissed him. Over and over again. This is a typical token of respect with which disciples kiss their rabbi. So he's he's not only a, a materialist, thief, betrayer of the Son of God. He's a hypocrite. Now, why did the mob and Judas think a sign might be necessary? Well, because it was at night and they might not have been able to distinguish Christ from the rest of the disciples. They weren't interested in getting the disciples so much. They were interested in getting Jesus. The disciples, as a matter of fact, scattered from here, and they didn't get caught. And the Roman soldiers themselves may have never seen Jesus, so Judas thought that it might be necessary to kiss him for a sign. Now, Jesus had escaped other attempts to arrest him, and that's why Judas was taking a lot of precaution here. Luke chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Luke says, but he, Jesus, passed right through the crowd and went on his way. That was in Nazareth. John 10, verse 39, then they were trying again to seize him, yet he eluded their grasp. So Jesus had not gotten caught yet because it wasn't his time to get caught. But Judas had seen Jesus escape a lot of opposition before. He wasn't going to take any chances this time. All right, now let's read. I'm going to read two parallels. I'm going to read all three parallels for you to get a full sense of this scene here because the other parallels add some detail to it. And this will be the background as we continue with the rest of Matthew. Mark 14, verses 43 through 52. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, he went right up to him and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they took hold of him and arrested him, and one of those who stood by drew his sword, that's Peter, drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, his name was Malchus, and cut off his ear. But Jesus, and notice it's cut off, he didn't just cut it, he cut it off. But Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple complex, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him, that's all the disciples deserted him and ran away. That's a key verse there. Now a certain young man, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. That was Mark, the guy that wrote that gospel. I'm quoting from there. He almost got caught, but he slipped his outer garment off and and headed out of town with the rest of them. Luke chapter 22, verse 47 through 54, another parallel passage. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob was there, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? See, that was what I was just saying. In this passage, you see that the kiss was not necessary because Jesus anticipated the kiss and said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And, of course, he said that to make the irony apparent. Here you have a man coming up with a mob, betraying his master, and and yet hypocritically showing affection with a kiss. So he's basically saying, Judas, are you a blazing, frippin' hypocrite? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Notice that they had the swords. They were not pacifists. They were, it was dangerous back then. You could get attacked by robbers, especially disciples who traveled around a lot. Then one of them, that was Peter, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Cut it off. Didn't just cut it. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. 
a great miracle, healing a cut-off ear. Then Jesus said to his chief priest, to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple complex, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour in the dominion of darkness. A little detail Luke adds here, the dominion of darkness, which it actually was. And of course, Jesus is making fun of them because he said, Hey, you could have caught me all day, but what's the matter? Are you scared of me? When all the people were behind me and they're not behind you? They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. That's Caiaphas' house. We'll take that up next audio. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Most everybody scattered except Peter. He, he went by, back a safe distance and followed and saw what happened. And I suspect that's why we know what happened, because Peter related it to Mark and maybe the other gospel writers. John 18, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus had said th these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane was at the bottom of the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley at the bo bottom there. Kidron Valley was between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, which was to the east. And he and, his, he and his disciples went into it. That was their normal gathering place, as a matter of fact. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, the kiss is not mentioned in John's account, Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Another interesting detail. His arresters hit the ground through Jesus' power, I'm sure. And of course, I've got a question which I can't really answer is, why did Jesus do that? Why did he knock them silly? Maybe it was to show that if he wanted to, he could have knocked them all silly and just walked out of there. But, he, but the scripture had to be fulfilled. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. And so that, of course, let the disciples escape mob injustice. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. That's a quote from Zechariah, I think it is. Then, no, excuse me, that's a quote that he himself made. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. That's another detail that John adds. At that, Jesus said to Peter, sheath your sword. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the company of soldiers, the commander, and the Jewish temple police arrested Jesus and tied him up. All right, there's a good background of what happened. I've thrown in some details from the, from the parallel passages, and so we'll go through it in a little bit more detail now. In Matthew, Matthew 26, verse 50, friend, Jesus asked him. Judas called, Jesus called Judas friend. What an ironic title, friend. He was his friend. He traveled around with him for three and a half years. And then he says, friend, why have you come? Well, of course, Judas knew why he'd come, and Jesus was going to make him say it. Then they came up and took hold of Jesus and arrested him. Now, there's an alternate translation for that. That's the Holman Christian Study Bible, where Jesus says, Friend, why have you come? The NIV says, Friend, do what you came for. And then in, a, in their note, in their margin, they say, Friend, why have you come? So there's two ways to translate that. Why have you come? Or, Friend, do what you came for. Either way, he called him friend. Now, why have you come? If that why is in there, Jesus could be asking uh, this. Are you coming as a friend or as an enemy? Well, if you're coming as a friend, what are all these soldiers and swords and clubs being, and torches being waved around behind you there? But if you come as an enemy, why do you kiss me? So Jesus explicitly pointed out the contradiction, the hypocrisy, the stupidity of it all. 
Luke 22, verse 48 says this. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, that is ludicrous, Judas, what you're doing. It's hypocritical. It's stupid. Now, how did he say, friend, why have you come? Or friend, do what you have come to do. Did he say it ironically and sarcastically? John Gill denies that. I don't think so. Was he just going along with Judas's pretense of friendship? Ju Judas comes up and says, hi, Jesus, let me kiss you. I'm your friend. And Jesus says, friend, huh, friend, why have you come? And he points out his hypocrisy. Well, maybe so. Or maybe he was actually trying to cut Judas's sense of conscience. In other words, if Judas, Judas had any conscience left, maybe he was trying to say, look, you're still my friend. I'm going to give you a chance to get out of this. Of course, Jesus knew that he wanted, because the scripture had to be fulfilling you, he was going to be arrested. So I guess Judas was, in, he was all in at that point. He couldn't get out. So I don't know whether Jesus was trying to get him to repent there or not. As John Gill says, Adam Clark says, how must these words have cut his very soul if he had any sensibility left? Well, I doubt. Now, Jesus had never shown his power before to the people who were trying to arrest them. But he, here, as it says in John 18, he struck some of them to the ground. John 18, verse 6, when he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. So this proves that, according to John Gill, that they never could have arrested the Son of God unless he had voluntarily surrendered. Surrendered. Now, it's interesting to me, it's strange, as Adam Clark points out, that they would dare approach him after this. I guess they were scared of those chief priests, or the chief priest in the crowd said, go get him. I don't care if you fall to the ground. Go get him, or we're going to try you for insubordination. I don't know why, they, but they came back after him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. The one is Peter, impetuous Peter, drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, whose name was Malchus, and cut off his ear. We know that from John 18, verse 10. John Gill makes the interesting point as to why Peter mentions, why the gospel writer Matthew mentions Peter's name here. Excuse me, why John's gospel mentions Peter's name here was because John's gospel was written late so that there was no danger to Peter. That's assuming that. Now, you know, of course, later on, a lot of the, the dating of the gospels has gotten earlier and earlier, even by liberal scholars. And uh, I remember Bishop A.T. Robertson has every gospel written before 8070. So if this was written in the 60s, 30 years later, I guess Peter would still be safe. But then I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know why. But the point is, but the, the fact is, Malchus is mentioned. Now, what motivated Peter to strike this ear off? Well, Peter had bravely said he would follow Jesus to death. If you recall from the last audio, uh, when they were in the Mount of Olives, he said, no, I'll, no, I'll never deny you, even to the point of death. This was after the, the, Lord, the Last Supper. It could be his conscience was bothering him. Remember, Jesus rebuked Peter, James, and John three times for being asleep in the garden. So Peter, ironically, was too passive in the garden and too aggressive here at the arrest. He didn't quite have it right. He was operating according to his flesh. It was not until Pentecost that Peter started operating according to the Spirit and became such a great Christian leader. The fact that they were carrying a sword, by the way, the, the apostles, was evidence that Jesus and his disciples were not pacifists. They were armed against attack. Now, why did Peter cut off the guy's, Malchus's ear? Well, he was not aiming at the ear, probably, according to John Gill. He was aiming to cut Malchus's head off and missed. Now, it's a darn good thing, because if he had cut Malchus's head off, that crowd would have had bloodlust aroused in them, and they would have massacred every one of them, probably. They would have massacred all the disciples and Jesus and shortcut God's plan of salvation and the establishment of the church. So in the providence of God, he missed his head, and then Jesus, of course, healed his ear, which, of course, calmed the crowd down. 
Notice that to heal a cut-off ear, Jesus either had to take up the ear and reattach it or create a new one. Either way, it was a tremendous miracle. Verse 52 in Matthew 26, Then Jesus told him, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. And this is a famous saying, All who live by the sword will die by a sword. Now, it's a famous saying, and basically people take it today to mean if you want revenge, you want to live by revenge, you're going to pay for it. Somebody's going to revenge you. But I don't think that that's what's happening here. Now, here, so here's some options as to what Jesus meant. First of all, it could refer to private people using swords for revenge, but that doesn't fit the context because Peter wasn't trying to get revenge on anybody. He was, trying, he was using the sword in self-defense. So that's not what he was doing. Is anything wrong with using the sword in self-defense? Absolutely not. And yet Jesus rebuked him. So it, uh, obviously Jesus is not re- use, referring to the use of swords for, for military use or police work or magistrate's work. Obviously not. In Romans 13, his disciple Paul said, you know, the sword is given to the government to take care of evildoers. He didn't rebuke the centurion whose servant he had healed. Jesus wasn't a pacifist. He sent out the disciples and was it Luke 22, sent disciples out with a sword to protect themselves uh, against attack by criminals, by thieves. He never rebuked Peter for having the sword in the first place. So it wasn't the fact that he carried the sword and tried to defend and as in an abstract manner. Jesus was not saying it's wrong to use the sword in self-defense. He's not saying that. What he was saying was you don't try to establish the kingdom of God through military means. He was trying to warn his disciples how to operate in the future. And would that the medieval church had obeyed him in that because the medieval church ended up trying to establish the kingdom of God through political and military means which is a different realm. It should never have been done. It was the biggest mistake that Constantine 325 making the church tolerated and then Theodosius at the end of the 4th century making the church the official church of the Roman Empire was the biggest disaster that has ever afflicted church. State church union is a disaster. Well, here, you know, you are, I think that's what Jesus was saying. Look, there's no point in you trying to protect me through a sword. It's, it's going to be by the Spirit, not by the sword, especially in this case. And not only that, even if he was using the sword for self-defense, it was stupid because they didn't have a chance of winning the battle of self-defense because they would have been totally overwhelmed by the mob. So Peter was just acting without thinking. Here's another option. Jesus was not referring to Peter, but he's referring to the Jews. He was saying, don't worry, Peter, the Jews have taken up a sword against me, but the Jews are going to live by the sword. They're going to die by the sword in AD 70 when the Romans are going to come in and they with their roman swords they're going to slice them all up and uh, and then the romans are going to perish by the sword as well this here this is what adam clark believes he's got a quote it is probably this phrase here about those who live by the sword will die by a sword is probably a prophetic declaration of the jewish and roman states the jews put our lord to death under the sanctions sanction of the romans both took the sword against christ and both perished by it the Jews by the sword of the Romans, and the Romans by that of the Goths and Vandals, etc. That's the 5th century. The event has verified the prediction. The Jewish government has been destroyed upwards of 1,700 years, and the Roman upward of 1,000. So, that's a very interesting phrase. Those who perish by the sword will, those who live by the sword will perish by a sword. Matthew 26, verse 53. Or do you think, again, Jesus is talking to Peter, or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus is saying, Peter, what you're doing is unnecessary. If I wanted to defend myself against these, this lynch mob, I can do it. I've already knocked some people to the ground. I can get 12 legions of angels. In my divinity, I can do that. 12 legions is a lot. That's one for each apostle and for Jesus. Some people speculate why 12. Kind of a arbitrary number, really. Kind of a strange number. But um, Adam Clark says, 
Instead of you twelve, one of whom is a traitor, my father can give me more than twelve legions of angels to defend me. And John Gill says it was twelve because that's the proper and full complement of a Roman army. But for whatever reason, he says, I can get twelve legions of angels. And that's a lot of angels. The Roman legions had about six thousand or more soldiers, according to NIV Study Bible and John Gill. Six thousand times twelve. Seventy-two thousand angels, roughly. I think they could take care of this. So, so Peter has been instructed. Matthew twenty-six fifty-four. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In other words, Peter, you're going against what God has predicted before because God, an omniscient God, knows the end from the beginning. Therefore, he can give prophets prophecies that know the end from the beginning. And the scriptures say that I'm going to be killed this way. Now, let's look at some of the scriptures that say this, either optionally or, or we could say including all of them. Some, some or all of them. The NIV Study Bible quotes Zechariah 13, 7. Sword, sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will also turn my hand against the little one, which is exactly what happened here. He, Jesus was struck and the disciples were scattered. Jesus had already quoted that passage from Zechariah in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or maybe it was the Mount of Olives before the Garden of Gethsemane. It slips my mind. But just before this, he had quoted that. Psalm 22, this is Adam Clark's suggestion of the scripture that was fulfilled. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? In other words, Jesus is not going to be delivered according to Psalm 22, 1. Psalm 22, 18, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. That would never have happened if Peter and apostles had won that battle in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, of course, there's the famous suffering servant passages, which the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark suggest, Isaiah 53, 1 through 2, 1 through 12. I'll mention verse 9 here. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death. That's Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully, that would not have happened if Peter had won a battle, a sword battle with the mob. Isaiah 53:12. Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he submitted himself to death, and was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So Isaiah predicts that Jesus was going to pray for these people that killed him, and that he was going to bear the sin of those who had rebelled against God. Daniel 9, 24 through 27, that's the famous 70 weeks passage in the middle of the 70th week Jesus cut off. Crucified, Zechariah 11:12. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. So they weighed my wages, 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal would not have com been complete if Peter had won that sword battle with the mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. Psalms 41, verse 9. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. I, of course, refer to Judas. Psalm 69, 21. Instead, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Psalm 34:20, he protects all his bones, not one of them is broken. All of that, of course, is fulfilled either in the run-up to the crucifixion or at the crucifixion. So it, when Jesus said, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled so that it must happen this way, he could have been referring to all of that. And I list all those scriptures to show how often the crucifixion was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's amazing. And how precisely and how closely. Matthew 26, verse 55, at that time Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs? as if I were a criminal to capture me. Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple complex, and you didn't arrest me. Of course, he's making fun of them now because they were cowards. They had to come out at night, and he was pointing out to them that Jesus was more popular than they were. He's making his enemies look bad all the way to the end. If they didn't arrest him then, when he was teaching in the temple complex, it must be because Jesus was innocent, right? Of course, that wasn't the real reason. The real reason is they were scared of the people. So he's poking fun of their cowardice that they were scared of the people. 
All right, so let's go to Matthew 26, verse 56. But all this has happened so that the prophetic scriptures would be fulfilled. Now, I've already listed a bunch of those prophetic scriptures. I won't read them again. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. And, of course, that's just like Zechariah prophesied, the sheep will be scattered. Now, why did Jesus mention this fact that Scripture was being fulfilled there in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because he didn't want his enemies to think that they were thwarting God's will. He, he, he was telling them, oh, you think you've got me now. You think you're, you're bigger than God, and you're doing God's will. Uh-uh. You're just walking right in to the fulfillment of prophecy. Of course, those people didn't know what the Scriptures meant anymore that I understand nuclear physics. He also could have been mentioning the prophetic scriptures being fulfilled here in order to buck up the disciples' faith because they were going through a very hard time. They were sleeping and running in the hour of crisis, sleeping in the garden and running from arrest. John 16, verse 32, Jesus had actually predicted in advance before this unfortunate scene here that all of these disciples would desert him. John 16, verse 32, Look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So, even the cowardice of the disciple. And you know, I'm not really sure. I, I, I hesitate to say it's cowardice because they were outnumbered. They didn't have a chance. And Jesus told the arresting mob, let these people go. So they were just running away after Jesus. said, I'm not sure that's cowardice. That might have just been self-preservation there. But at any rate, they were scattered. And they were probably running because they were scared that when Peter cut off Malchus's ear, that... The mob would be incur it would be in a rage and come after him and, and blame them for what Peter did. So all the disciples, and that means literally here, all Peter, James, John, the three, the other eight, headed for town. All right, now we're going to stop here because verse 57 has Jesus being led away to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And we're going to look at the trial of Jesus by the Jewish authorities first in the next audio. And I think that we're going to do the next audio after that. We'll look at the Roman trial of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed this audio.